Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to Jukebox Zeros, the podcast where Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito are fucking Christo-fascist ideologues. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was that was out of line. Let me try that again. <clears throat> hey, everybody. Welcome to Jukebox Zeros, the podcast where Brett Kavanaugh, uh, Gorsuch, <laughs> where Brett Kavanaugh, what's-his-face Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett all fucking lied under the oath. Sorry. 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 I'll take that again. Let me just try that one more time. <clears throat> all right. We're on the tapes. Right. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to Jukebox Zeros, the podcast where the Democratic Party is complicit by their complete and total inaction. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll try uh, it one more time. I had one right, more right. time. Give it one more go. Fourth time's a charm. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Jukebox Zeros, the podcast where your idols come to die. I'm Lils. Yeah, and all that other stuff, too. Susan uh, College has blood on her hands. Shit, I did too. it again. Yeah, uh, uh, America is a farce, uh, always has been, but uh, just, you know, just a little more obvious in the, in the papers today, of course. But uh, yeah, we're, wait, uh, wait, we, we can get that. We can get all that stuff in editing, I bet. Yeah. We, we won't actually get that in editing. You don't know. You don't know how I have them on my team now. I've got a, a, a whole staff of editors. Mm. Some, I was wondering big, what, some are small. Okay. I was wondering what Ben Shapiro was doing behind you. That's my cat. That's Hobbs. <laughs> won't even go. Won't even go with that bit, will you? I don't blame you. <laughs> I wouldn't even pretend that I had Ben Shapiro in my life either. But yeah, I'm Lels. Yeah. I'm Patrick. Welcome to the program. Yep, we're uh, we're a little salty today. Yeah, we're a little salty today because of the. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure you, you've read in the papers, heard on the news, the the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which uh, we kind of all got like a, a spoiler alert from back like in may uh but yeah as, yeah, no as of today june uh late june it's it's uh it's, it's official uh democrats could have codified it into law like several decades ago but they didn't but we all know they're useless so uh yep. <laughs> this turned into a political podcast uh very quickly yeah uh, uh dunkaroos there now we're but now we're now we're back on track now we're back. Yeah, now we're back to 90s nostalgia where everything feels warm and fuzzy. Yeah. Uh, and there's some semblance of of, uh, of superficial hope in, in my... Yeah, I mean, everything's fucking collapsing. Our world is like crumbling all around us gradually. But fuck it, let's make fun of Roger Waters today with our special guest. Yeah, we got Nate Nemitz back on the program. Hey, what's up, gang? What's going on? Our, it's our sweet, your boy. sweet boy. 
Yes, our sweet, sweet boy who, who is here to help us through. Our wonderful, beautiful boy. And I'm so happy to be back. Bags, uh, and the must-watch movies podcast, which we haven't done in like over a year. But Broadcast? Yeah, come back. <laughs> must, must do what must-watch movies. Yeah, exactly. Why do they call it movies when you move in the... I don't, I don't, I don't. When you move in oven, hot eat the food. Yeah. And you ease out move you ease on down the road try the coke i hate it i don't like it it's the apology section literally no other there's literally no other segue that would have worked good one it's a deep cut yeah Thanks. I'm trying to make them a little bit more like tangentially relevant to the album we're talking mm. about. But, yeah, I heard uh, that from the on the Steely Dan album. You did that one yeah. too. I was it was very good. Yeah, the little green earrings snippet was. Uh, yeah, was good. Little green earrings in the Steely Dan episode. Now we got a little anyway. bit of one of my turns in this one. Uh, you got anything you want to apologize for, either of you guys? Me? Uh, not this week. No, I I thought the last episode went great. I got nothing to apologize for. Sorry. If, yeah, uh, I, I think we have. I think we have apologized enough times during the falling in reverse episode to really just sort of <laughs> tidy us over for quite a while. Like yeah. that. That was a lot of apologizing we did. I think we got like like a whole backlog of apologies. We're, we're in the black. No, we're 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 in the black as far as penance goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in the black when it comes to apologies. Yeah, we we it, it'll roll over. So uh, I think that means that gives us free reign to be like complete dicks if we want. We will not, though, because we're benevolent people. Yeah, of course. We're we're trying to put in good positive energy into the world. We're not here to yuck anyone's yums. Yeah. Well, I mean, we are. We're we're here to kill your idols, I guess. But (laughs) Yeah, but like they knew that everyone who's listening knew that was the name of the game when they came in. So they're, they're doing it like... Like, we have their consents to kill their idols moving forward. And if not, then uh, uh, maybe check yourself a little bit. But these guys are going to like the Baja Men album. What the hell is this? I I still understand the old Baja music. I turned into this podcast where I say clearly in the description that they're specifically about bad albums to talk about how much they enjoy my all-time favorite album, Tonight by David Bowie, and I was incredibly <laughs> offended. <laughs> I, I mean, that guy is, is, is based as fuck, of course. I think that Tonight is his favorite David Bowie album. Oh, the guy who, the guy who, uh, who called in to complain? Yes, that guy. He, he's yeah. We should we should have him on the podcast to review Love Beach. Should, we should have had him on to review tonight, but I guess we we kind of whiffed it there. Yeah. Oh well. I guess we're apologizing for that. I guess. I mean, and the reserve grows sure. bigger. Yeah. All right. So should we start? Like, should I introduce this record? I will fully admit up front that I am woefully underprepared for this one. Like, I got so busy, I was only able to hear it for the first time today. Hey, that's oh man. Well, then I apologize that you had to hear this album for the first time in AD twenty twenty two. Because, like, I don't know. I I I used to think it was awesome, but now I like. 
I maybe I just like played it to death for myself, but I oh, I don't just give it away not... right off the bat. Oh sure, all right, all right, all right. Prog plug. <laughs> oh right. Prog rock is an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Especially when you say something like prog rock legends. Prog Let rock. me try that again one more time. <laughs> Sorry. Prog rock legends Pink Floyd were an increasingly were, <laughs> fuck prog rock. Prog rock legends Pink Floyd were in an increasingly awkward spot by the time the 1980s rolled around. Bassist slash vocalist Roger Waters had all but asserted total control over the direction of the group, having fired longtime keyboardist Richard Wright before the creation of their 1979 mega hit, The Wall, famously reinterpreted by total internet numbnuts Doug Walker. But that's for another episode. <laughs> Hot off the record success, however, and with the hit film adaptation firmly in theaters, Waters conceived of a new record which would, have, which would have stood as a companion piece to the film called Spare Bricks, which would have featured new music re-recorded for the film. Those plans were abruptly shelved with the coming of the Falklands War, a territorial invasion of Argentina by the UK. Waters, who was opposed to Margaret Thatcher's actions, pivoted in a more political direction, taking further inspiration from the wartime death of his father in World War II, just as he'd done on the wall. This shift was not well received by the rest of Pink Floyd, however, particularly David Gilmour, who disliked the blatantly political tone of Waters' material and believes the songs that were included were not good enough for a new record. The end result was released in 1983, originally titled Requiem for a Post-War Dream, but eventually renamed to The Final Cut as a reference to William Shakespeare's famed historical play Julius Caesar. It consisted of material intended for spare bricks, as well as brand new songs all written and sung by Waters himself, which led to comparisons that The Final Cut was in essence a Roger Waters solo record. Reviews upon the Final Cut's release were broadly mixed, with a majority leaning towards the mediocre or negative, with a few notable exceptions. Kurt Loder, in writing for the Rolling Stone, gave the record five stars and called it a superlative achievement on several levels. Commercially, meanwhile, the Final Cut would go down as one of Pink Floyd's lowest-selling studio records, reaching only single platinum status, which after the mega-success of The Wall, spoke volumes to the band who did not engage on a tour for the record and would be a catalyst for Waters' own exit from the band in the wake of a ruinous lawsuit between Waters and the rest of Pink Floyd. Retrospective reviews have been a lot kinder, noting the record's important place in the band's history. But will we? We're listening to the final cut by Pink Floyd today. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So I already mentioned up at the top, like, today was the first time I ever heard this album. Like, I was familiar with... The reputation it received as like sort of a uh, sort of a last gasp for Pink Floyd and in essence a Roger Waters solo record, but that was pretty much all that I knew about it. Uh, how about you guys? Do you guys have prior? I assume you guys both have prior experience with this record. Yeah, so I mean, I, I've been a Pink Floyd listener for for a long time, uh, as are like most white suburban northeastern boys. Uh, I don't know if there's like a Southern equivalent in the Southeast of Pink Floyd. Is it, I don't know. Is there a Southern one like Kings of Leon or some shit? Maybe Leonard Skinner. Oh, Leonard that's, Skinner. That's what yeah, I was going to guess. Or maybe the Allman brothers or Allman brothers. Yeah, sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I've been familiar with their stuff for a while. Uh, I actually didn't dip into this record until uh, maybe like, I don't know, 10, 15 ish years ago. Uh, so yeah, I was kind of more familiar with it uh, once I got into my twenties. Uh, but yeah, I, I actually I, I enjoy it quite a bit. 
uh it's uh obviously not their best but like uh there's some things that i like about it i think there's some some good pink floyd moments on it uh but uh yeah other other than that uh i don't think i've listened to it in like maybe five or six years so it's kind of interesting to go back uh and check it out today because actually I, I was kind of with Nate. I'm, I actually did quite like, quite like it uh, when I was listening to it. Uh, you want to talk a bit about like your uh, connection to the record, Nate? Sure thing. Um, I've been like a Pink Floyd super fan for for a really for a long time. Like they're they're my number zero favorite band. I like never <laughs> have to. I never have to listen to them again. And I just like know all of their songs. Like I could just, I could just like listen to a whole song of theirs in my head if I wanted to. I don't really do that, but I could. Um, <laughs> and I just kind of like, particularly when I was like 13, 14, 15, I went on this like quest to learn like all the Floyd songs on guitar and hear all the albums and all the like deep cut stuff and all the like Sid Barrett stuff and just be like the Pink Floyd wizard, if you will. And um As you do. yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I at one point I bought all the studio albums and uh, uh by the time I bought the final cut, it was just like one of the ones that I hadn't completely run into the ground for myself already because I loved like all the, I just loved all the ones that didn't get like a lot of critical acclaim. Like I, I loved uh, like Adam Hart mother and metal and I just, uh, or not, what is it? Obscured by clouds. Metal did get some acclaim, but, um, anywho, uh, the, and the, the final cut, it just like, it struck a really interesting tone with me because it wasn't really anything like their other stuff. Like it didn't have like much of a psychedelic element to it at all. And it, um, just the arrangements were a lot more like subdued, but also sophisticated to my like rock and ears as a 14 year old, you know what I mean? So, um, I was just like, Oh, this must be like, intelligent music (laughs) and uh so uh you know it i just kind of i got a lot of the like i i was sing i was i listened to it today to get ready to get ready for the episode and i was i found myself singing along to a lot more than i thought i was going to be able to like remember words wise but yeah i just uh i really drilled this album into my head a long time ago and uh you know i I think it has a lot to be appreciated. We can talk more, more sour grapes later. Yeah. Right. Intelligent music. They, they, they play intelligent. This is the this, intelligent album. They this is, say, this is Pink they say intelligent intelli- album. They say intelligent <laughs> things like war is bad. No one's ever said that before. <laughs> no, I, I guess I meant specifically more musically, not li- not lyrically, but right, like right. the the arrangements and like a lot yeah. of like trumpets and strings and very like plucky piano parts and stuff like that. Yeah, was it more because like arrangements? Was it more yeah. because like those sort of arrangements just weren't really done in rock that much, or yeah, and just uh, yeah, weren't really in, weren't really found in a lot of other like. Similarly, contemporary things or similar things that I was listening to at that time, anyway, that were like that still got all lumped together with each other, like Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and Tool, all you know, all get lumped into the same category, and they're like 
starkly different bands. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I know what you mean, and like, especially with with the the production and everything, it sounds very cinematic and and like you know uh, maybe a bit deeper than I don't, I don't know what else you were listening to at the time, like System of a Down or something. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like it definitely. I feel like it definitely did have a lot of pretensions towards like being a bit more like of a performance piece than a rock album. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right. Should we start getting into the tracks you think? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So we're starting us off with track number one, the post-war dream. Tell me true. Tell me why was Jesus crucified? Was it for this that daddy died? Was it you? Was it me? This is... Rip-roaring start, baby. Oh, yeah. The the energy is very high, like, right (laughs) off the bat. (laughs) Damn. So here we've got Roger Waters basically kind of treading ground that already got tread, like, a lot on the wall. I mean, I... And animals, actually. For that matter. Yeah, that's 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 probably true. I would I would just assume that this was one of the ones that uh like that almost made it onto the wall, but then it just got saved for this one. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's it's not the the chord progression isn't isn't terribly complicated and, and you know kind of goes uh there's a uh, there's a cranberries down. song that's the same exact chord progression. I I, I hear it on like on like uh, that kind of radio, and I'm always like, "Oh, that would be the stupidest mashup of all time." It's like <laughs> this cranberries. See, it's, song. it's interesting you bring that up because it also has a very similar chord progression to uh, John Prine's song "Sam Stone." Oh man, you're totally right. All right, I think we've got a, a, a hit single on our hands. <laughs> oh, a mashup of those three specific songs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice happy songs. <laughs> Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a that's a club ready song. <laughs> Ready to hit We're gonna club, get down yeah. and sad. Yeah, this is um ain't happy like at all. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've and like there it really doesn't get any happier at any point on this record. I do like that big uh that big climax at the end of this song though, when the drums like finally kick in. When uh, when I heard that for the first time, Dick Mason gets to do something. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The first time I heard that little 14 year old me was like that, that meme of Chris Pratt making that face like the, (laughs) (laughs) that, that was me, dude. That was, I just, uh, I, I loved uh, dynamics before I knew the word for it. Yeah. It was, yeah, I, I, I will say that that's a great use of dynamics that they do. It's definitely uh, not the most exciting start to an album, but uh, it does get saved by, you know, Nick Mason actually being allowed to do something for a few minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's you'll, good and you'll use find the room for once, you know, it's not. Yeah. You'll, super and you'll find after enough record. listens of this album, you'll find there's not a whole lot of McNason, uh, Nick Mason on this record. Like it literally, it literally says on the Wikipedia page for the final cut album that his uh, contributions were mostly relegated to sound effects. Nice. <laughs> sound effects of drums. He was playing, he was playing with the drive time radio soundboard. 
All right. Think, that explains where all about. those little voices come from. Yeah. Oh, that's what it is. It's just him doing all the different uh like radio voices. Cause yeah, this one has uh some like car radio stations being tuned in of like different, I don't know, like sound bites of, of news, political events happening or something like that. Uh yeah, so I, I think for me I kind of appreciate the tone of it. It it feels very uh 1983 in a like socio-political way uh which i'm kind of fascinated with that time period a little bit like late 70s early 80s america in general uh it's kind of just has a lot of wild political events happening you know obviously reagan thatcher Mm -hmm. in power um all sorts of fucking shit happening uh (laughs) put uh but yeah it 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 has that feel and and like it's 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 cold uh the the drums for once kind of have some roman echo on it which you don't get on a lot of floyd albums uh usually you know it's it's that signature boxy sound yeah that's true they are kind of compressed on a lot of previous albums yeah it's like kind of the thing and yeah you actually get like uh you know some nice rum on it and yeah it actually helps the dynamic and bringing brings up the excitement a little bit uh takes you out of nowhere and uh yeah i think there's uh, a little bit of uh david gilmore soloage on this one i can't remember if he does anything but uh his leads on this album in general I, i'm i'm like mostly like considering how little invested he was in it like it, he does some good shit i think yeah that's like david gilmore definitely wasn't so into this album but the th- the contributions he did make to it still like sound like really good. Yeah. Like he was enough of a consummate professional to be like, okay, let's, let's do this thing. Oh yeah. No, and they, they, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he, he enjoyed getting to just noodle around and play solos too, you know, to be yeah. a, a, a guitar player. They, they never fucking shut up. Yeah. He certainly staked <laughs> his claim on this album with Roger Waters, Nick Mason and Richard White. Oh, wait. Oh no! There's no Richard. There's no Richard Wright on this album, is there? No, there is not, not at all. This, I believe, is the only Pink Floyd record up to that point to not have any Richard Wright on it. Like he'd been fired, I think, just prior to the recording of the Wall, and was just brought in as a session musician. Yeah, and I, <laughs> I guess he actually made more money as a session slash touring musician than he did as a member of Pink Floyd. So he, really, I think like after yeah, I think after this he joined on as a session uh, as a session touring musician for mm-hmm. a bit, and it, and it actually like or maybe it was or maybe it was during the Wall that he did that, and then, and then he did come back as a full member. But yeah, he he it like was more uh, you know financially advantageous for him to be a session player for some reason just how you know how they paid out that's interesting you know and they Mm. i'm sure there is a result of a dumb record deal they did when they were fucking tripping balls back in 1965 or whenever they formed that's a life hack that you can try at home kids yeah are you are you a touring musician just do just do what he did yeah (laughs) exactly you'll make more money Get paid yeah. by the record that's, company. That's simple, folks. Not that shitty 360 deal that you that you got when you were tripping ass back in the mid sixties. Like but no, that song honestly. that song is musically very good. It's certainly not a bop, but like musically it accomplishes exactly what it's set out to do, I think. Yeah. yeah. Like I definitely thought it was a perfectly good piece of music, 
but after a while, like I just found it kind of hard to distinguish between all of the other, the wall sounding dirgy pieces that are on this record. Yeah. It's mm. definitely a, a, a Roger Waters style song that he was, I mean, and I think he changed up his style a bit uh, after and, and before this period, but there's, there's definitely like a thing he was settling into for a bit. Uh, Cause was it the, the interstitial pig tracks uh, at the beginning and end of animals uh, are, are kind of like that too. It's just like, you know, him strumming an acoustic guitar, kind of simple plagal cadence happening. Uh, and then, yeah, we, we get a lot of that on this album, you know, with, you know, varying results and things mixed in here and there. But yeah, that's like definitely yeah. a style he's into at this point where it's a little less proggy and a little more like three chords in the truth, I guess, uh, mm. uh, you know, kind of more singer songwritery. Uh, so yeah. that, that's just lends and a little, bit, and a little bit more musical theatery than like rock yeah. opera than like concept album. too. Yeah. And I think it just lends more to the idea that this probably should have been a Roger Waters album uh, with mm. Pink Floyd guest musicians. You know, he's, he's right there. He's singing right in your face and, and he's doing that you know, that, that two chord style and everything. And yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting it right, right then and there. This is not the same. This is, this ain't your granddaddy's Pink Floyd <laughs> or something. <laughs> anyway, we're moving on to track number two, this one titled Your Possible Pasts. interesting like there are so few of these more sort of traditional comfortably nummy type sort of not sort of tracks on here that when they do happen they just stick out so much more like amidst mm-hmm. all the dir- amidst all the dirges yeah this song too is like the first of a, a, a good few songs on this record to have this theme of like it's it's a Roger Waters song for a part and then it's a Pink Floyd song for a part like it is exactly it uh you can just kind of tell like uh i don't know it's like roger waters song is the verse and then the pink floyd is the chorus part and it just kind of shifts back and forth Mm. and also fun fact about this song there's a scene in the movie the wall where the uh the lead character is sitting in a bathroom having some kind of episode and he's singing this song to himself very quietly yeah okay i remember remember that scene yeah 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 this this is a decent tune uh again not like the most exciting but i think it accomplishes most of the pink floyd things uh even if it is a bit roger heavy Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, you get, get some gnarly David Gilmore stuff and, uh, you know, we get a Hammond organ, even though it's not being played by, yeah, that's being played by Andy Bound, whoever the hell that is, some, some session guy. Uh, but yeah, this again, like kind of has a good use of dynamics and like, damn, it, it's just fucking depressing. This is a, like a mopey fucking album. <laughs> really no else, like other way to say it. This I mean, is, to be fair, Pink yeah. Floyd generally aren't like a very like uppity, like poppy sort of band necessarily. Get up, but... come on, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Let's shake our buns. Come on, Sid. I wrote a song about a bike. (laughs) You can ride it if you like. If you want to. If you want to. (laughs) Maybe work on that. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. I don't have much to say about this one. Yeah, same here. This one's pretty good. Like... Though, like like I mentioned, I think the fact that it just sticks out is just because it's a bit more traditional than a lot of the more dirgy stuff on here. This one, uh, not released as a commercial single, but did receive significant radio play, which resulted in the song hitting number eight on the Billboard Mainstream Rock Chart in America. And it was one of several tracks to be considered for the band's best of album, Echoes the Best of Pink Floyd. It ultimately did not make it in, though. And you know what did actually? No, I'll I'll say which one it was when uh, when we get to it because I had that album. <laughs> oh, I did too, actually. And I know the answer as well, but I'll I'll uh, keep it under wraps. Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna say like which one it is, but just looking at it from like I have the Wikipedia page open. The only one like specifically from the final cut that's on there. I'm just looking at it and thinking, why that one? <laughs> it should it should have been this one. Like this one. Like, is it's like Arrested very, Development. Looking yeah. at it, I go her. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah no this one would have been a much better pick i think even uh even if it wasn't like that uh huge of a single or you know that breakout of a hit but uh yeah i mean this this would have made a lot of sense amidst the the yeah the Pink Floyd i agree c so after that we got track number three one of the few when you're one of the few to land on your feet do to make ends meet make them mad make them sad make them add to and to this one another reject from the wall that eventually ended up here um it introduces a musical motif the melody that waters sings that would come back towards the end of the album and that's for the most it. part, it, for the most part, it <laughs> describes the actions of a survivor of World War II as part of the anti-war concept. Yeah, it, it's and there's there. really not a whole lot to say about it because this one is so short. It's basically an interstitial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what, like this. This is literally just Roger Waters playing acoustic guitar and synthesizer and bass guitar. Yeah, it's all him. You, even the like the synth orchestrations and whatnot. Uh, it, it's all him. So. Yeah, yeah, and, and that, that's true the of the idea. entire album, too. All the tracks are written by Roger Waters, and he sings lead on all of them. Like, David Gilmore only gets to sing lead on one track, and he shares that with Roger Waters. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, again, this is we're, we're getting a Roger Waters solo album here. Oh, yeah, totally. Before we move on to the next track, I'm going to read this really quick excerpt from the recording section, because... I think I know which one it is. It's it's interesting. So, so like, we're a few few paragraphs in, and it's talking about just the general sort of setup of it. Like, American composer Michael Kamen, who had contributed to The Wall, is back on the thing. Uh, James Guthrie was the studio engineer. There was supplemental percussion by Ray Cooper, like, uh, and Andy Newmark. 
and just a whole bunch of stuff about like, you know, where it was recorded. There was recorded in multiple studios, including Hookend Manor, uh, Mayfair Studios, Olympic Studios, Abbey Road Studios, and more. Wow, what a like completely normal sort of, uh, you know, what I would expect from a recording session. Certainly the next paragraph will continue in that manner. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's, that's why I wanted to read this next paragraph, because it's completely normal. <laughs> Tensions soon emerged, and what, like, like us, we're normal now. I don't think we did that at the beginning, so uh, sorry. I don't think that's, I don't know if that's a requirement quite as much as that, but, uh, you know, they, they, they know, they know we're normal now. I'm waiting with bated breath. What is the next paragraph? Okay. Tension soon emerged, and while Waters and Gilmore initially worked together, playing the video game Donkey Kong in their spare time, they eventually chose to work separately. Engineer Andy Jackson worked with Waters on vocals, and Guthrie worked with Gilmore on guitars. They would occasionally meet to discuss the work that had been completed. While this method was not itself unusual, Gilmore began to feel strained, sometimes barely maintaining his composure. Cammon, too, also felt pressured. Waters had never been a confident vocalist, and on one occasion, after repeated studio takes, Waters noticed him writing on a notepad. Losing his temper, he demanded to know what Cammon was doing, only to find that Cammon had been writing, I must not fuck sheep, repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs> Old Mikey boy. Always a barrel of laughs, that guy. <laughs> you know, nor- normal times. Normal fun times. Normal fun times. And Donkey Kong, too. They were, I mean... Yeah, geez, that, 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 that one I... That one, I kind of liked that little nugget right you there. You breezed right by that one. I forgot about the sheep part. I was just like, Donkey Kong. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, get... isn't that always fun to just find a little bit of trivia like that? Like, yeah. It's like finding out that, like, I don't know, like Eddie Vedder was, like, fucking playing Tetris while recording Black or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> in between not, takes. Not in between takes, while recording it. <laughs> <laughs> Just playing battle like tests are going. Am I better hairs beneath the crouch? <laughs> Anywho, so track number four technically does not appear on the mainline version of this record. It appears on the remastered version from 2004. And normally we don't bother like doing like the special tracks that it had been added for reissues, but considering this one's connection to the record and it's literally only just one more song, I figured like we might as well include it. So here's track number four, When the Tigers Broke Free. It was dark all around, there was frost in the ground, when the tigers broke free. fucking love this song personally yeah <laughs> yeah i do that's why we, we should include it because it's, it's a great fucking dude it's, it's yeah. so fluffy bombastic it's so good <laughs> yeah technically it's more sort of associated with the film pink floyd the wall than this but really it just sort of fits perfectly into the whole sort of concept of the final cut like i feel like it probably should have been included in the first place not just saved for a reissue 
Yeah, I mean, like the lyrics paint, you know, definitely paint a picture too. He's talking about like the scroll he receives and like side by his majesties. I don't know. It's, it's, it's that, and this one, like, great. I feel like of all the ones, like I mentioned, like a big sort of musical theater element, this one really goes all in on that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's for pretty, sure. like, like HMS Pinafore type, you know, just the like kind of turn of the century. Oh, British. yeah. It's, Big fucking, sort of thing. big fucking Gilbert and Sullivan vibes. Telling yeah. you, it's real intelligent shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you know, smart, smart things, musicals, tigers. Tigers breaking free. This is this is the song about my, my cats when they, they break out of the bedroom when they're supposed to be locked in there because we're working on the vacuum thing out here. And they break out, little bastards. See, that's a completely <laughs> different song that I would imagine Cats Breaking Free. Like, uh, maybe, maybe this is just me, but I can't picture, like, a big breakout happening and not think of The Boys Are Back in Town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like just the soundtrack to A Door Being Kicked Open, that song? It was dark all around. The boys were back in town when the Tigers broke free. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, like I literally listened to this album not more than a few minutes before we started recording and had pretty much all the songs fresh in my head. And this is still the only one that still is like the highest like in my brain. And I had already heard it from when it was in Pink Floyd, The Wall. So like once we did reach this point in the record... Like, I just thought to myself, mm, it's on the reissue. Do we want it? I think we fucking want to book, do that one. <laughs> yeah, I'm fucking playing when the Tigers broke free. I'm going to fucking do it. I'm not sure why I turned into some kind of goblin there, but. <laughs> into like Meatwad or something almost. <laughs> into oh, Dave yeah. Mustaine. Dave Mustaine, Meatwad, <laughs> Duck Nephew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it's been gooey. a while since we brought that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello, Uncle Donald. Me <laughs> <laughs> <See> again. <laughs> Presents. Presents. <laughs> this track number five, The Hero's Return. Jesus, Jesus, what's it all about? <laughs> Another one, another very anti-war song that was originally intended for The Wall, but included here. Uh, Dave Gilmore, as we mentioned, was very opposed to the recycling of songs, believing that if they weren't good enough for The Wall, why are they good enough now? This one's pretty good, though, I thought. Yeah, mm-hmm. this, one's, this is a groovy one. Yeah, lots of, lots of really cool sort of noisy effects happening, too. Yeah, this is kind of like that uh, like edgy post-punk disco feel that you got yeah on, on the, on it does kind of have a bit of a post-punk like maybe roger waters had picked up a little bit of i don't know a little bit of public image limited or whatever oh definitely in between all in between all of his gilbert and sullivan jags yes there's also an extended version of this song i forget where i heard it i don't know if it's on like any like 
Um, oh yeah, it's the four minute and two second version is the B side to uh, the big single off the record, which we'll be getting to a bit later. Oh, uh, and okay, like, gotcha. even though this one was technically not released as a single, it's still charted at number thirty one on the Billboard mainstream chart in America. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, this mainstream rock chart rather. Yeah, we got uh, Andy Bound back on keyboards, and I was just looking up his page. He was in the band Status Quo. Mm. Uh, I don't really know much about them, but yeah, he he was there, and he's and he did a little a uh, little bit more touring work or, or possible session work with Roger. Yeah, too. looks like he was tight with Roger Waters. He played on like his solo record, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Oh uh, yeah, that, which would come immediately chestnut. after. Yeah. Yes. Playing Yamaha electric piano, uh, you know, the, the motorcycle company, <laughs> of course, motorcycle and, and boat engine. And they also make like pretty dank. This, this is probably going to be a really stupid question. Are those all the same company? I've never yes. been clear on that. Oh, absolutely. They are. They're, oh yeah. yeah. That's, that's wild. After that, we got track number six, the gunner's dream. To the service when you're walking slowly to the car And the silver in her hair shines in the cold November air You hear the tolling bell and touch the silk in your lapel so under personnel, I'm reading like the usual Waters Gilmore Mation are listed here. We're, I don't remember if there were drums in this or not. So I there are. cannot. There are? Mm-hmm. Okay. I just picked the wrong clip then to cut off. Yeah. This is a longer one. Uh, yeah. And it, it does kind of build up into uh, like a more band arrangement. You get drums, you get a sax solo from Raphael Ravenscroft. Amazing, name. amazing yeah. name for a session musician, by the way. Famous for playing the saxophone on Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. Made the goat oh, right there. Jerry Rafferty. Also, also performed, it looks like, with uh, ABBA, Marvin Gaye, Mike Oldfield, and Daft Punk. Wow. Very that's, cool. That's quite Oh, amazing. I wonder if he played on that record that they did in, like, 2013, the Random Access Memory, where they had all the session people mm. from like this mm. time period that would attract i like how in this song before the sax solo it um he does that same thing similar to the thing he did in in the song sheep on the animals record where it's like you can't quite tell where the vocal ends and like the instrument like starts oh yeah this oh, was yeah. the one like, that did that thing where it just sort yeah. of hold on to the dream and it just kind of like fades out into the sax yeah, solo that, that was a very cool effect yeah yeah, sax solo was kind of a highlight uh, in in this particular song. Otherwise, it's uh, yeah, it's a bit bit slow and dirgy when we've already been kind of put to task with a lot of uh, dirgy tunes already at this point. Yeah, it's it's another one that really just kind of blends in with all the other kind of. I think you called it uh, Roger Waters' sad boy music. Yeah, uh, in our so, group chat. Yeah, for me, this is kind of a weird album because. Uh, I mean, like we we get like some good stuff at the beginning, uh, you know, maybe uh, good stuff later on, and then for me, it kind of dips in the middle. Uh, and yeah, I think like the length of this track and the fact that it's slow, uh, kind of uh, yeah, drags down the momentum of this record for me at this point. Yeah, would would you say maybe that it's also sequenced a little bit uh, off? I feel like like the energy like the energy just isn't kind of a weird place in a lot of times. I think I, I don't really know because I think. 
because it's, of the sequencing. It's very ballad heavy in general, this whole album. So I don't, I don't really know that you could arrange it much differently and still not have a bunch of ballads in a row. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think like we were supposed to get like some kind of elevation with this track where, you know, we get the sax solo uh, in the middle, but like, you know, it's cushioned by, by a lot of slow. A lot of fluff. A lot of fluff, a lot of slow kind of Roger Waters E stuff. Hmm. This song literally sounds like it, it could be like a Disney musical number, like the melody and the and the arrangement with like maybe some different words. It would just be like in like a nineties era like hmm. Disney movie. So with, you with think Tim Rice on friend, vocals. So you yeah. think as our friend Jim Schultz has positive, you could totally put that shit in a beauty and the beast. Yeah, the I think so. <laughs> That like bum bum. It's just like very uh very Disney to me. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, more more big musical theater vibes. Yeah. I could I could see intelligent shit. See Peebo Bryson doing a cover of that, sure. Yes, and it's always it's always Peebo Bryson. It is always Peebo Bryson, isn't it? Here's track number seven, Paranoid Eyes. Laughing too loud at the rest of the world with the boys in the crowd. You can hide, hide, hide. This one, believe it or not, another one that was considered uh, for inclusion on uh, Echoes, which this one I don't see quite so much. Like your possible all. pasts definitely would have been a great inclusion. Not so much Paranoid Eyes. Mm. This song yeah. has great lyrics, but uh, yeah, I, I guess it was it was uh, going to be a scene in the movie The Wall, too. It was... Um, I'll, did you... Uh, I could save that for for the hosts if you like, but uh, <laughs> but no, um, go for it. Oh well, no, I guess it was supposed to be like uh, they were going to continue on the story of the teacher from the oh, Wall movie, oh, yeah. and uh, yeah, like the that's, the that's bizarre. Yeah, like he was um, he was a like war vet also who like you know they touched on the fact that he was like abused at home by his fat and psychopathic wife but uh they didn't really yeah. include any of his of bad. his exactly yeah but they didn't really uh post any uh, they <laughs> post they didn't uh they didn't use any of his other backstory of um of I guess he was a post-war hero that's where I was gonna say that and uh or a post uh, or a post uh post-war guy anywho who knows about hero but i guess so yeah he uh it was going to be a scene of him like walking around getting and like mistreated I, by the public hmm, that that i assume was like like just based on your description it sounds like that was meant to be like a big humanizing moment for the guy when after all we'd seen is like him abusing children right yeah exactly hmm. yeah i think you, roger you, just liked doing the voice and he, he didn't want to stop <laughs> And like the rhyme scheme of this song, really good. It's really, uh, really poetic lyrics. Yeah, I think though. Again, we we got another kind of slow ballad thing here, kind of bringing down the momentum of things. Yeah, like don't get me wrong. A lot of the lyrics on this album are really, really good. Like Roger Waters is obviously a really good lyricist, 
it's just that the arrangements on so many of these songs kind of just sort of bring it down and like you said kill the momentum yeah this is definitely uh, one of them yeah and this is this is again just roger waters with uh michael Kamen and and uh like a few other guns no other pink floyd yeah ones, it's uh roger water like under personnel by, by the way wikipedia has a page for almost every single song on this record that was surprising uh, i was yeah. very surprised to see that i have a feeling some of them probably could have done without because one for paranoid eyes is very short but like under personnel, we got Roger Waters on vocals, bass guitar, acoustic guitar with Michael Kamen on piano and orchestrations, Andy Bone on organ, Ray Cooper on percussion, and the National Philharmonic Orchestra on brass and string arrangements. Good for them. Yeah. No, uh, no other Pink Floydy people contributed to this. But yeah, further, further adds to the uh, prospect that this really should have been a uh, Roger Waters solo album. Like, I feel like by that point in their history, they were pretty much like just sort of circling the drain anyway after, like after the wall kind of took so much out of them. Yeah, no, for sure. All right. So after that, we got track number eight. The only track from the final cut to not have its own Wikipedia article. Get your filthy hands off my dessert. Desert, (laughs) sorry. Brezhnev took Afghanistan and Begin took Beirut. Galtieri took the Union Jack and Maggie over lunch one day took a cruiser with all hands. Yeah, he's he's not a fan of Margaret Thatcher. Did you know that? Uh, no, he's, yeah. not. He no bring, he's not. He only brings it up like all the time in this record. Who is though? Right. Yeah. I to mean, be fair, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not 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 necessarily a uh, unpopular opinion at that time. True. Uh, true. Yeah. At least again, we finally got a return to form, music wise, huh? At last, f- finally, some good Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> finally, that classic Pink Floyd chamber music sound that we all come to know. <laughs> Yeah, this is what I'm here for. Yeah, I, I got to admit it. It drags it down. Oh, Gang's <laughs> all here. We got Richard Wright on his classic harpsichord. Oh yeah, <laughs> dainty wigs. I mean, the, the wig arrangement was was a big part of of this whole thing. David Gilmore credited as handkerchief. Oh yeah, and uh, here we go. Uh, handkerchief and goofy laugh. Oh yeah, they had handkerchief and. <laughs> yeah it's as fancy nick mason on tickling people in a with a feather in an absinthe den <laughs> so yeah this is really not much can be said about this one this is like like uh like one of the few this one's another very interstitially kind of track that yeah. really it's more just like the novelty of like oh what are pink floyd doing making chamber music yeah, it's more of just a vehicle for for the political lyrics, and I think the sort of harsh, uh, you know, the harsh political, you know, uh, his his angle uh, and tone, you know, is supposed to sort of be a contrast with the you know this powdered wig <laughs> chamber music that's happening in the background or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can kind of appreciate that uh, that little bit of irony there if that's what he was going for. 
Yeah, I guess there's sort of an inference that it's like a very, like they're mentioning all these world leaders with like very aristocratic music playing. Like maybe that's sort of the inference. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's all these like missile. Well, there's a very loud missile sample at the beginning of the song too. And you can hear a guy like, yo, get your filthy hands off my desert. And Roger Waters goes, what does he say? And then there's like a huge explosion. And, uh, it's like, I think that, yeah, the aristocratic music is because it's like, this song is like also a little brief lesson in like modern colonialism and, uh, all this is like going on. Like these people are like launching rockets at like Afghanistan and Beirut and stuff. And like, it, it is all these powdered wig people just like sitting in there and, you know, doing intelligent shit. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yep. um, like yeah doing all sorts of intelligence I think that shit, that, just yeah. sitting around I, like with I think boxes that and throwing wine soaked grapes at each other <laughs> only the finest intelligence but the um but yeah that little juxtaposition musically is uh is is kind of fun if nothing else like mm-hmm. you know i guess like he just really ha- he had that nice little rhyme that like oh wow that all rhymes and it's a nice little brief history lesson on like british colonialism and soviet colonialism let's uh let's um hmm and like <laughs> well schoolhouse rock said no i guess i'll put it on the record <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> yeah i would say this track and the next one uh yeah they're they're, they're definitely uh kind of they had to have this theme of, of yeah treat treating the our you know imperial leaders as these like old aristocrats and like oh you know they this is all they know they live in these like ivory towers and it's like almost sort of pathetic yeah which that is kind of what the yeah sorry yeah which brings us to track number nine the aforementioned track that did make it onto echoes i believe track number nine the fletcher memorial home come up here to themselves every day on closed circuit tv to make sure they're still real Yep, it's it's still ballad time. That has not that has not ended at any given point. It's still ballad o'clock. Yep, and here's the one that ended up on echoes. Yep, instead of possible pasts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, In case you were wondering what Roger Waters sings like, this is like <laughs> this is the this is the song that's like Alexa. What's Roger Waters' singing voice sound like? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> It has the. It does have a very high concentration of Roger Waters doing his kind of delivery. <laughs> oh yeah, and that and a little bit of his uh, kind of like lower register Stewie Griffin thing, where he's like, "Go to the bed." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That is awesome. I'm never gonna not. I kind of drifted into a little bit of Ren Hoek as well. (laughs) Burning in my heart. That just like is Stewie Griffin. That's so goddamn funny. (laughs) That's all I could think of. Uh, uh, I I enjoy this track quite a bit, uh, mostly for the the lyrical content. It's it's very amusing to me. Um, Always great to get that perspective on on like. Shitty yeah, real world it's, leaders. it's hard not to feel pretty good about you know a song that specifically calls out these world these world leaders by name and just calls them a bunch of tossers. 
Yeah. And then like kind of a, a tongue in cheek yeah. thing at the end where the, there's the line that's like, all right, now to implement the final solution or something like that, which I assume I hope is them just torching that home, that memorial mm-hmm. home, just set it on fucking fire. Yeah. Burn that's fire. what I think. He, he, yeah. He wanted, he wanted to gather all of these uh, world leaders and anonymous Latin American meatpacking glitterati into the same building and just like torch it. I think in my, in Minecraft, yeah, I, in Minecraft, not, not really sure. I- <laughs> yes, in 1983, in 1983 Minecraft. Yes, in in Minecraft. Yeah, I I don't really get what the uh, reference to Latin American meatpacking glitterati was about, though. That was. I think a, he's talking about. I think he's talking about like um, the the different like uh, what do you call them like um, like the shell companies that got started in Latin America like uh, like Chiquita and different oh, like okay. meat export countries where they're all of a sudden were all these like all those uh, places that made these, bank, all those places that made bank during the Falklands Islands yeah all, and all, all these places that like the CIA had their like fingers in every pie and just like tried to you know um, uninstall any sort of like I see yeah, that makes sense. There's there's a lot I don't know about the Falkland Islands conflict. Mm. Me too. But, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it's all about Rogers Roger Waters' frustration with the leadership of the world since World War II, mentioning by name a lot of people that really seem like they deserve it: Ronald Reagan, Al Haig, Menachem Begin, Margaret Thatcher, Ian Paisley, Leonid Brezhnev, Joseph McCarthy, and Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. He specifically yeah, like calls the, them out uh, as colonial wasters of life and limb. Beautiful. Yes, he does. Beautiful. I like that he said the memories of Nixon, although he was definitely still alive at that point. I, I just, I, I like the idea that like people just sort of viewed Nixon as like he just like backed into the bush like hmm. fucking Homer Simpson. <laughs> well, but by the time he was impeached after the whole like Watergate thing, it's like nobody was like people like Nixon during like during like the 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 big crackdown on like communism and stuff like that. But by the time that he was like, you know, fully losing his mind and fully displaying his corruption, people were just like, all right, fuck this guy. So I think memories of Nixon just being like, I, I like if the song came out today, it would be memories of Reagan, you know, like even though oh, yeah. Reagan's dead, it's like the way people like ideal, like put him on a pedestal as this like change in world leadership. You know what I mean? Right. See, that's an inter- that's interesting because like I was about to say the way that I interpreted it was more like the memories, like more specifically of what Nixon did, because a lot of people point to, you know, Nixon's terms as like the point where corruption really started to like fester worst of all in like American politics. And he definitely mm-hmm. like, you know, set a seat, set the stage for a lot of that shit in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, to be fair, like corruption runs deep in American politics going way, way, way back centuries. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was like by by Nixon just sort of made it more obvious with his voice. It was, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it coincided with, you know, economic decline in America, which I think, you know, it, it, it bites a little harder when you see the corruption kind of happening at the same time, I guess. Yeah. Good song. Don't know if it was worthy of inclusion on Echoes, though. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. It's, it, it's, I mean, it definitely paints a picture of the final cut. <laughs> I, it, it weirdly, it, it, I, you know, it definitely gives you an yeah. idea of what a 
good chunk of what you get on the album, which is C- certainly not. Certainly, I wouldn't say not over your possible pasts. Yeah, I mean, mm. there there are definitely better tracks on here, but like, I mean, you get Roger doing snarky political commentary with yeah, come, uh, big come to think fluffy of, strings. Yeah, it's pretty to, much the final cut, in my opinion. Yeah, pretty much. Come to think of it, now that I now that I think of it, like the lead single off of this record wasn't even included on Echoes. What was the lead single? I forget. Uh, track eleven. We'll get to that when we get to it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But anyway, or I guess it'd be track 12 since we're going with like the reissue track list. But anyway, here's track number 10, Southampton Dock. She stands upon Southampton Dock with her handkerchief and her summer frock clings to her wet body in the rain. In quiet desperation Another acoustic ballad, another big acoustic anti-war ballad from Roger Waters. Um, Maybe with slightly more vivid imagery, but only because of like all the sound effects that are kind of, you know, sort of setting the scene a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, Mm. it's still very interstitially. Uh, It's short and and doesn't really... It's kind of an intro to the next song for sure. Like... um, Like when I used to take my guitar everywhere and stuff, if I like, I would play this song and the next song together mm. if I was going to play the next song. Yeah. But, uh, that makes it, sense. uh, yeah, but, uh, I really like the words to this one too. It's just, uh, so like vivid and just like, um, you know, just a great interpretation of like, you know, swearing to never go to war after World War II and then like immediately going back to the Falklands in the 80s and uh, not immediately, but, you know, less than less than like, you know, 30 years Way more later. quickly than they should. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, the, the, this definitely feels like an intro because it's like, you know, pretty much the same kind of F major chord progression. Uh, that he, I mean, he he does that a few times uh, over the course of this album. Uh, so I guess like they're all kind of uh, uh, what's the word foreshadowing uh, the next track in a way. If if, if you contextualize it that way, uh, <clears throat> like a motif. Yeah, it's it, it's yeah, it's more if you look at it more like a motif and less like he's just doing the same thing over and over. I can kind of see the artistic merit in that. Mm, That's fair. After that, we got track number 11, the title track, The Final Cut. Would you sell your story to Rolling Stone? Would you take the children away and leave me alone and smile and Final Cut is one of four songs along with The Hero's Return, one of the few on your possible past used in the final cut that had previously been rejected from the wall. Read that wrong. Uh, this song is in the video version of the album. The Final Cut video EP makes an appearance as the B-side of the selections from the Final Cut radio promo single along with your possible past on the A-side. Um, it's a song about isolation, depression, sexual repression, and rejection. And at the end of the song, he attempts suicide, but never had the nerve to make it the final cut. The words behind the wall in the song are obscured by a shotgun, cl- a shotgun blast, which is a reference to 
the aforementioned album, The Wall. So maybe this one is one that might have been told from the perspective of Pink. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I always kind of viewed this as like the logical sequel to The Wall for some reason. Um, mm. And it, it has the feel, uh, kind of the same tempo uh, and even like similar uh, string arrangements to Comfortably Numb. Uh, definitely like a very similar production. Like I, maybe this one, yeah. Like maybe this one could have been an epilogue to The Wall. Yeah, or I mean, I, I think, I mean, arguably it, 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 you know, kind of exists in its own storyline, but I like this one quite a bit. Uh, I, I, this was one of the ones that I had heard first, I think, I, uh, before checking out the album in full. This was, um, must have been during YouTube era because I think I remember checking it out on YouTube first for some reason. Uh, so it couldn't have been, you know, that long ago. Uh, but yeah, great lyrics to this one. Uh, very like personal, uh, you know, kind of male vulnerability, you know, which is commendable for for someone like circa nineteen eighty three for a guy around then. Uh, yeah, and just kind of dark stuff. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how much of this is sort of a character or how many of these feelings kind of existed in Roger's head, but you know, they feel sincere, uh, and and I think like. I mean, I, I, would have, sort of- I would have to imagine, like, compared to all the other tracks on this record, like, I'd be willing to believe that, like, Roger Waters is being sincere, like, considering, like, considering just how much of, like, his own personal history he put into, like, so many of the other lyrics. Like, he seems yeah. like, and he seems like the kind of performer who would just do that sort of hard on your sleeve sort of sincerity. Yeah. And, like, it, it, it's funny, like, even uh, there, there's a line where, he says something about, well, you sell my story to Rolling Stone. Uh, and, you know, like, even though, you know, I, I would never be in a situation where that would be a thing. Like I, I, I you know, weirdly kind of understood it, uh, which is kind of weird. I don't normally feel a lot of sympathy for famous people. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think that was one of the things that kind of like, you know, gives you a pause you kind of listen it's like oh yeah you know like you you kind of don't know who's gonna sell your story you kind of don't know who you can open up to you don't know who you can actually be vulnerable like what would you right. what would you do yeah um and yeah i mean that's 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 real shit uh and think like the chords the the song itself is very genuine uh this is uh yeah i mean this is actually one of my favorite pink floyd tunes uh, hmm. i i uh, it's it's a strong point for for this album for sure. I agree. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't say much. My my dogs were misbehaving for a second, but I think it's <laughs> under control now. Hey, you be nice. Come on, Bowser's <laughs> bunch of bozers. Bunch of bozers. <laughs> Here's track number twelve, the lead single off of this record. Not now, John. track that uh david gilmore gets to share lead on lyrics written by roger waters dealing with uh war and criticism of margaret thatcher of course but with general criticism of like greed and corruption that was happening in post-war europe america and japan mm, and also consumerism oh yeah and in many ways i feel like just sort of 
like in keeping with the narrative of this album, maybe like just sort of a more cynical response to like all the anti-war things that Roger Waters was saying. And this is like, I don't, I don't know that this is just my interpretation of it, but this is like, you know, a response from like those in power, like Roger Waters has all these anti-war things to say immediately leading up to it. And, and like this one immediately opens up with the line, fuck all that. We've got to get on with this. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's like a, I think it's like an irony thing. Like it's, it's from the perspective of these like CEOs and stuff of, yeah. and, and, and also I would imagine probably a lot of working class people who, you know, would just like eat up that sort of propaganda. Sure. Yeah. Who have been, yeah, subsumed which by the I propaganda why, machine. Which I assume is why there's so many like very antagonistic things being said about the Japanese on here. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to represent the lumpen proletariat, the the sort of yeah. <laughs> like racist working class. But yeah, yeah it, could, it could also be CEOs. It could be uh, you know, yeah, whatever the fedora wearing bourgeois playing on like those racist tendencies of people who still like have those sort of mal that sort of malice for Japan post World War Two to like yeah. to sort of get what they want. Right, exactly. This yeah, song is just Young Lust. It should have just been, a, it, it's better than Young Lust. It should have just been on the wall instead of Young Lust. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, it's very, I mean, it is, it is Young Lust. I agree with that part. I don't know if it belongs on the wall so much, but uh, it, uh, yeah, this one's interesting because we, we get an F bomb. They, they say fuck, which F bombs, swear yeah. words. Swear swears we get some swear words on this one uh which right well i mean he says bullshit on harsh money. harsh language for little babies ears we get we get the backup singers doing it which is kind of fun uh yeah. get the like the gospel singers to say fuck all that yeah for the uh censored ver for like the radio friendly versions uh the words fuck all that were overdubbed as stuff all that <laughs> interesting not, not, not quite as good yeah, it kind of loses its uh, its velour a bit. <laughs> yeah, reached number seven on the U.S. mainstream rock tracks chart and number thirty in the U.K. Very good. Nice. Pro, pro, I mean, you know, it's laudable to just get on the charts at all, but after like the fucking enormous success that came from the wall and like you know how how big of a hit like another brick in the wall part two was and all that. Probably not quite up to like what they were hoping for. Yeah. I mean, 83 must have been a tough time to be a Pink Floyd fan because, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know how, how cool they were at this point. Probably not very. I know like a lot of 70s groups by like the early 80s, like, you know, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, people were kind of like, kind of like you cringe at them at this point. So yeah, it's like the same thing that my old coworker has always said, like, all the bands that were like at their biggest in the sixties and seventies made their worst material in the eighties for the most part. Yeah. And, and you know, you can kind of, or at the very that. least worst performing material. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, most bands don't have more than like a 10 to 15 year shelf life. Like if you get a, a good album from a band 20 years in, like without some sort of like down period, yeah. uh, like that's pretty then your good. Sparks. Yeah. Then your sparks. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it. I have to imagine like that, you know, audiences, rock audiences weren't just, you know, they just weren't that excited for something like this, this sort of like 
musical theater sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And like, I feel like the 1980s was a time when rock music was getting like before post-punk really, really took off was getting like significantly more hollow and kind of vapid in like the, in like the subject material. So maybe this wouldn't have like clicked quite so well at a time of like, you know, Huey Lewis and the news, not, not to, not to knock on Huey Lewis in the news. I'm just saying that's what was going on. No, I mean, I mean that kind that, of Huey Lewis in the news and Robert Palmer. You don't have to think too hard, kind of rock music. Yeah, no, no one's saying that Huey Lewis is intelligent music. <laughs> uh, <laughs> good shit, but but I mean, a lot, a lot of a lot of dumb shit is good. Um, mm. But I mean, yeah, I, I yeah, rock was kind of in a weird place at this point because I think a lot of the the younger people were into like heavy metal at this point, or, or you know, new wave punk stuff like that and then yeah brock was kind of yeah like you said just becoming kind of a shallow hollow version of itself yeah uh, appealing more to 30 somethings so like yeah that's when you got your uh john cougars and your uh the what's his name brian adams and shit like that mm, um, right this, this would have been a little too heady uh and, and you know with swear words it's that's not christian no that's that's harsh language that's harsh language you know that that's it's not allowed stuff all that that's not even good i mean what what do you think the stuff is hmm. it's come <laughs> how, how long were you waiting to say that the entire episode <laughs> it's been a while since you've made a cummies joke hasn't it i mean i i almost made a comment uh during what was it the post-war dream about the the post come dream, but I don't know. <laughs> oh boy! Oh boy! Oh boy! Post war clarity. <laughs> Very good. That was Oof. the one. That was the one. Excellent. After that, that leads us into the final track, track thirteen: Two Sons in the Sunset. saxophone solo from Raphael Ravenscroft. And uh, even though there's some really nice drum on here, uh, no Nick Mason on this one. He felt he was unable to perform its complex time signature changes. So the drum duties were delegated to session drummer Andy Newmark. All right. Interesting. Yep. Andy Newmark, former member of Sly and the Family Stone, who's also performed with David Bowie and Roxy Music. Interesting. I didn't even notice the time changes in this one. Oh yeah, this it's it's on a whole like it's like a slanted like a mixed meter kind of thing. This is my this is my favorite. uh, Yeah, this is my uh, favorite tune on the album, not least of which for that reason. Oh yeah, because it's it's such a fun little like swaying back and forth mixed meter type thing. I mean, it's definitely like a good ending track, I would say. Really ties the, the whole thing sort of, into a nice, beautiful little bow. Yeah, and just really like encapsulates all the moods that were were happening over the course of the album and then just explodes into one big thing. Yeah, this, mm-hmm. album, this album has a super strong finish. Uh, I think like all the more 
punctuated by like the the sort of stretch of dirges that we get before it. Uh, so yeah, I, I this one is always I always forget uh, that it's a decent track and that like it, it's not you know like you kind of expect at this point that like oh he's going to throw another ballad on here but yeah we 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 get full i mean kind he of kind of right did there. but then it just sort of took off in a slightly more oomphy direction like yeah i mean way through it. It, it it's not like completely deflated like there is like some use of dynamics and excitement um you know some sort of elevation happening i guess to the end right right uh i assume yeah. i i i don't have the the page open in front of me i assume this is a reference to uh hiroshima or something it's just like it's kind of just about like an impending nuclear holocaust like a like like a world ending one which like i think the the like tone of the song is like it's supposed to be like like a driving off into the sunset roll credits kind of song i think that like the second sun in the sunset is supposed to be this like gigantic like nuclear flash that just like means the end of the world Mm. and it's always just had this like kind of like like almost like a hopeful but like ending kind of kind of sound to the whole like arrangement of the song is not even hopeful like acceptance like it's just like yep well here there's the bomb like sort of and a, like, <laughs> like sort of a this is the ending we deserve sort of kind of resignment yeah yeah res- resignment but like but like not in a like relieved resignment almost like um like not like um I always do this on you guys' shows. I always am like, what am I trying to say here? Oh, me too. <laughs> me too. Like five years in. But no, it's it's got this very like, almost like blase, like a, well, what are you going to do? That's all folks. Yeah, kind of like, uh, quietest, <laughs> like, yeah, quietest sort of just mm-hmm. acceptance. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, without... We we can't rebuild unless uh, we we bring everything to to rubble and ashes. It's like right. uh, posadism or something like that. <laughs> then there are I dolphins. Wonder if, I wonder if there's some sort of connection between that and modern events that could be talked about. Hmm. Anyway, let's get to our final thoughts. Uh, so, Pat, do you consider this track a worst of all time record? I consider this album to be worst of all time. No, no, not at all. I, I don't even think it's the worst Pink Floyd album. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's not great because uh, it, it does kind of lose momentum for me towards the middle of it. Uh, but like there, there's a lot of very strong Pink Floyd moments in addition to it being a, you know, Roger Waters heavy album. Uh, in spite of it being a Roger Waters heavy album. Uh, so I think like in some cases, you know, the, the members that were allowed to play, like kind of rallied and, and put forth their, their best, most professional effort. Uh, and yeah, like I said, there, there's a lot of tunes that I really like. Uh, one of my favorite Pink Floyd tracks is on here. Um, and yeah, I think it, it, it's a time period in music that I'm always kind of fascinated with. And this one, like, it, it like visually like really helps you kind of puts you in that time frame. And I, I, I don't know, I kind of like albums that are like that, that, you know, are older like that, that puts you in the headspace of that particular year. Um, you know, as like a history nut, it's kind of, I don't know. It's, it, it's, it's a good listen. Mm. 
Uh, same question for you. Uh, same question for you, Nate. Do you consider this a worst of all time record? Uh, worst of all time, no way. Like, uh, I think it's like a really underwhelming Pink Floyd album for like a band with such an appreciable body of work. Like, I think this one is really kind of just for the real heads as far as like a Pink Floyd album goes. Um, there is a lot to be drawn from it if you like stinging political music um if you like you know cool uh um rhyme schemes and uh like interesting imagery and some of the lyrics like it's it's worth a spin it's uh it's like a solid record i wouldn't call it like a rock record even like it it's like a it's a concept record that like rocks sometimes and uh like i totally get like i i feel the the grief from the uh from the recording process like it just kind of it kind of shows through like compared to like um releases from pink floyd where you could tell they were having a better time working together as a band it's just like um I think that you both said it at the beginning of the show, like uh, David Gilmore really like just showed up and did his job in spite of like, um, you know, all of that nonsense. Yeah. All the stuff going on behind the curtain. But like, uh, I think he did precisely that he showed up and did his job and just kind of like played a couple little David Gilmore licks. Like he did his middle that he loves doing a bunch of times. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, I think that uh, he Dave did, Gilmore, he, he, you, you can hear his. Uh, there's there's not as you can usually hear so much more like soul and intention behind the stuff that he's playing. And it seems like he kind of just like pulled out some of his licks and was like, yep, all right, Pink Floyd. And yep, there we go. It's the, the Pink Floyd and the Pink Floyd. And then was just like, all right, bye, everybody. I'm going to go make two mediocre albums by myself. Yeah, and like, exactly. so it's just like, I don't know. It just kind of like, it's a real career nadir for just about every instru- instrumentalist involved. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that all said, I love it, man. Like, I I think that there's plenty to be appreciated from it. And I really enjoyed listening to it today for the first time in a, in a while. Mm. Yeah. Um, I feel very similarly to some things that you guys said. So I don't really have, like, a concrete opinion on my own but uh, that I can really share. But suffice to say, I also don't think this is a worst-of-all-time record, but also that it's not, like, an especially great album, like, front-to-back Um, but in lieu of like a more, in lieu of a more detailed opinion, I will just read, uh, read off in the aftermath and legacy section to give us a little bit of a closer on like the story of this album. So with no, with no plans to tour the album, Waters and Gilmore instead turned to solo projects. Uh, Gilmore recorded and toured About Face in 1984, using it to express his feelings on a range of topics from the murder of musician John Lennon to his own relationship with Waters, who had also began to tour his new solo album, The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking. Mason also released a second solo album, Profiles, in August of 1985. In 1985, faced with a potentially ruinous lawsuit from his record company and band members, Waters resigned. He believed that Pink Floyd was a spent force, and he applied to the high court to prevent the Pink Floyd name from ever being used again. His lawyers discovered that the partnership had never been formally confirmed 
affirmed, and Waters returned to the high court in an attempt to gain a veto over further use of the band's name. Gilmore's team responded by issuing a press release affirming that Pink Floyd would continue. He told a Sunday Times reporter that Roger is a dog in the manger and I'm going to fight him. So basically, Roger Waters just basically decided Pink Floyd's over and you guys don't get to be Pink Floyd anymore. Yeah. <laughs> or he I'm tried, taking or he my tried toys to. and I'm going home. Rogers wrote Rogers wrote to EMI in Columbia declaring his intention to leave the group, asking him asking them to release him from his contractual obligations. With a legal case pending, he dispensed with manager Steve O'Rourke and employed Peter Rudge to manage his affairs. He later contributed to the soundtrack for When the Wind Blows and recorded a second solo album, Radio KAOS. Oh yeah, that one. I keep I keep meaning to check out that one. That one's uh that one's gotta be interesting. Mm. 1987. So I mean, according to Nate, they're both waters. mediocre. All right. No, the I was talking about the David Gilmore Pink Floyd albums oh, specifically. Okay. I was talking about momentary lapse in the division bell. Uh, um, Floyd more like, hey. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, to really close us out, Pat, what do you consider to be the best or least bad track on this record? Yeah, uh, I, I think I kind of brought it up before. Uh, the final cut uh, is pretty exemplary track on this album, I think, in general. Uh, one that, that strikes a chord with me, uh, or at least it did when I was younger and a little more sad boyish. Um, mm. One thing I was, I was noticing from this listen uh, is this album is is dense, but like oddly threadbare. Uh, if that makes any sense, like it, there's sort of like the interstitial tracks kind of feel like, like thin and like, you know, mm. almost like, you know, spider webby trying to hold this thing together. And it's, it's funny because, you know, you, you have a full orchestra playing and a full band, but like there, there's an emptiness kind of going on with it. And uh, I think uh, they brought it up where like, yeah, you feel the grief from it a little bit. Uh, and it's almost, yeah, like that uh, negativity kind of lends to an interesting uh, listen uh, mm. that you get from it, uh, interesting tone from it. Uh, that being said, Final Cut kind of feels the most dense, the most like full arrangement, other than maybe not now, John. The most complete? Yeah, the mo- most sort of like complete and, and full and and like, could be passed off as something on the wall or something like that. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's a great tune. Uh, same question for you, Nate, what would you say is the best or least bad track on this record? Um, my favorites, two sons in the sunset. Uh, the best is probably your possible past, <laughs> but uh, I think that like, they they're just like two, the two like shining examples like everything else you can they they stand the best on their own like they don't necessarily have to exist within the context of the rest of the album like that and not now john but i think that song's kind of corny i do like when roger waters like kind of raps at the beginning that's kind of funny yeah but uh but um but yeah i'd say the the best song is your possible pass for sure um, um, oh, sorry. Were you not finished? No, I probably was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, as for me, like my favorite track on here is when the tigers broke free. But since that was an addition to like the reissue, 
if I had to pick one that was specifically on the original one, I'm going to have to give it to your possible pasts. Mm. That one was very good. Now, Pat, what would you say is the worst track on this record? Uh, I think I'm going to go with the gunner's dream. Uh, and it does have some good stuff on it. It, it, it does kind of pick up in the middle, but it it's for me, uh, kind of the prime example of where the album loses me a bit in the middle. Uh, it, it's just a bit too slow. Uh, it, it takes a bit too long for it to sort of get to that sax solo, which is like clearly kind of the best moment of that track. Yeah, uh, just same too question long. For you. Oh, uh, same question for you, Nate. What would you say is the worst track on this record? I don't really like one of the few. Uh, I think it's like... I think that he, he had one line that was like the first line of the song and was like, that's a good line. And then just like felt like he had to make like a longer, a longer song out of that. It just kind of like feels like it was tacked on. Like it, it doesn't need to lead into the hero's dream or whatever that song is called. And it, it doesn't, um, let me look at what that song is called. The Hero's it's Return. return yeah. Hero's Return, that's right. It doesn't need to lead into that or into When the Tigers Broke Free on the reissue. But like, um, it's kind of just like that first line, like when you're one of the few to land on your feet, what do you do to make ends meet is good. But then every other line just kind of feels like, well, now I have to finish the song. It's just like, oh, you make them laugh. You make them cry. But like it You're does. You're one of the few that can. Uh, yeah, you make play them do the piano with both. With I mean, play play piano with both hands. Make <laughs> play, yeah. play guitar with both hands. But yeah, like, and I I do like. You know what? I take back that it doesn't have to be on the album because um it they do they go back to that motif and not now John and it like makes it make much more sense. Mm. So uh, that I will take back, but I still think that it just kind of stinks. My pick for like, I agree with you that one of the few isn't a great track. I feel like of all the interstitial length track, it's probably got the least going for it. But my ultimate pick for worst track, I'm going to say is Paranoid Eyes, Mm. because I feel like it loses the momentum like... Like, I agree with Pat that, like, the Gunner's Dream really takes away a lot of the momentum. It kind of gets it back with that saxophone solo, but once it hits Paranoid Eyes, it just really just sort of skids it to a halt. Yeah. Yeah. I, that was that was the second least for me. Just, yeah, that whole section in general, that whole kind of area of the album. Also, I'm just very tickled at the prospect of someone using, like, I can play piano with two hands as, like, a bragging right. Yeah, that was the idea. Well, I was like, I'm I trying to think to, of like, I'm trying to think of like mundane things that you know you could have been one of the few of. And uh, I don't know for some reason playing an instrument with both hands came to me first, and then it was of course an instrument that requires both hands typically. <laughs> I don't know. I need to make a YouTube video of like in like an edit like edit it so that it looks like Stewie Griffin is singing Paranoid Eyes. If not just for my amusement. That would be great. Oh, and that brings us to the end of the album. Thank you very much for coming back on the program, Nate. 
Oh, hey, thank you so much for having me. I love doing stuff with the Zero Science Podcast Network. Hell yeah. You got anything you want to plug? Um, I guess like an open invitation to slide into my DMs on Discord if you're interested in um, like collaborating with like helping artists get their shit out there. So that's uh, Scrackers number 3518, capital S, capital C, lowercase Rackers number 3518 on Discord. Uh, or just like on Facebook if you can find, if you already know who I is. Mm. But uh, that's the best way to reach me publicly. And I got some cool ideas, but I like need, I need more people power. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. You need, you got need anything a creative... You creative pillow of people you got anything you want to plug pap uh yeah actually uh agitation trips Bandcamp. uh look us up on Bandcamp. we're a uh creative collective from like boston and, and i guess including south carolina here and uh sacramento sacramento and, and various other parts of the country but yeah we're kind of a remote Philadelphia. Uh, remote collective of creatives uh, we put together a song every month uh, and the proceeds go directly to charity uh, and i'm kind of putting together the track this month yeah uh, I, I forget who said it but someone once just like someone in our circle described it as broken social scene but dumb yeah perfect <laughs> that's a great way to sell ourselves <laughs> anyway so if you like that but dumb uh but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm kind of ringleading the track this month and it will be out on uh, July 1st. Uh, we don't even have a title for it yet. Uh, and it's like six days away. That's fine. It'll happen. Uh, proceeds from that will most certainly be going to uh, some sort of abortion fund uh, in red states. Uh, I'm, I'm in South Carolina now. I know for a fact that they had a you know trigger law on the books ready to go for when they overturned well, this. Uh, so, um, I don't know, I'm going to try to do, do my best to see what kind of help I can provide down here. And, uh, yeah, probably we'll, uh, figure out what, what, uh, charity, best charity will, you know, uh, for that cause. Uh, and yeah, that's really about it. I'm kind of taking a break from, uh, my own music, uh, for a little bit. I've got some other things cooking, but, uh, I don't know, stay tuned for when I decide to come back. music <laughs> all right i'll plug i've actually got a uh, track coming out also on july 1st uh it's a collaboration between uh my production project sawtooth and uh our friend brian gruppner from the uh, star wars episodes project oh, yeah. gasoline invertebrates uh it's a track called gut rehab that's going to be hitting uh streaming services july 1st and like i don't like to talk myself up too much but like we made an absolute banger oh yeah i'm yeah i'm, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to hear it yeah and uh brian Gropner, of course uh wrote, did the uh the konami code song too with the gothicals right that was much better than falling in reverses yeah it doesn't take much to do better than falling in reverse so he really just ran rings around that douchebag uh it's always good to hear yeah <laughs> 
Anyway, our theme song is Sunny Day by the band Froggy and the Friendship. You can check them out at froggyandthefriendship.bandcamp.com. Uh, if you have an album you'd like to suggest for us to review or just would like to leave us some feedback or a comment, email us at jukeboxzerospodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jukeboxzeros or on Twitter at twitter.com slash jukeboxzeros. You can find us, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, or check out our archives on the Zero Science main page. Jukebox Zeros is a production of the Zero Science Network. For more great podcasts, go check out zero-science.com. And that about does it for this episode of Jukebox Zeros. I'm Lils. And I'm Patrick. And remember... Is that you playing piano with both hands? Yeah, all three. I was playing with my mouth. doing it. Look at him go. I was playing piano with my mouth. That's harmonica. Or melodica. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Three local idiots form podcast. Hey, all you out there in podcast land, are you bored? Maybe you're sitting in traffic, or maybe you're toiling away behind your desk at that dead-end job you just can't fucking stand anymore. Have I got a solution for you? Why not mosey on over to that search bar at the top of your favorite podcast app? Don't worry, I'll wait. Type in Old Men Yell at Cloud, a podcast where three unqualified musicians rifle through their vinyl collections and discuss their unwarranted opinions for everyone to enjoy or not enjoy. Check it out on the Zero Science Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.